When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. American Glutton Podcast has a Patreon. Do you hate commercials? Well, we've got a Patreon. Do you want bonus episodes? That's on the Patreon. Do you want to hang out and chat in our Discord channel? That's part of the Patreon, too. We even have an option where you can leave me voicemails. All on the Patreon. So check it out today. Patreon.com slash American Glutton. We have a Patreon. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. Meal prep, knowing what's in everything you get at a restaurant or the store isn't always easy, but if you're trying to lose weight, it can literally make all the difference. Trifecta meal deliveries have made all the difference for me and freed up a massive amount of my time and energy that I can now put towards other things like playing with my kids or time in the gym. Go to www.trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton to make your life and physical goals a whole lot easier. Today on American Glutton, my guest is Amy Morin. She is a psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and international best-selling author. Her book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, has been translated into more than 30 languages. You can find her on Instagram at Amy Morin Author. Amy Morin, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so 13 things mentally strong people don't do. My first question is, before I even get into what these things are, we talk about them. Are these things innate or can they be learned? Oh, they can definitely be learned. I think they're all things that we 
tend to do just out of habit, things that they're bad habits that we learn, but we can definitely unlearn them as well once we just become more aware of them and we figure out how they're making a bad impact on our life. Right. Yes. Sorry. Well, I said learn, but I meant unlearned. I meant like if we if we if we are already doing these things, can we undo them? I you know, there was certainly a time in my life where um, I felt incredibly mentally not strong. And like, I have all these ideas about strength. Um, When I go to the gym, I can objectively see that my strength has increased. I still am struggling mentally with stuff. And so it doesn't always feel like that has um, increased, but I know it has because I'm, I'm winning more than I'm losing. And I think the struggle gets easier, but I still go like, I'm, I'm not just utterly satisfied. I'm not just like, I'm done. I'm fixed. You know what I mean? But I guess I don't feel that way about physical strength either. It's always still kind of a work in progress, but I am very interested in unlearning some of these things, which I'm sure I do. Well, you know, and we all do them and I come by this habit, uh, these things, honestly, because people will say, well, like I do some of these things, so I'm not mentally strong. I'm like, no, for honest, we all do these things. Sometimes I wouldn't have come up with this list if I thought nobody ever struggled with them. Like we all do, including me. And even though I've been writing and talking about these things for years, it's still a struggle for me sometimes. And it kind of depends on what's going on in life, too. When life is going well, it's much easier to think, well, I'm pretty mentally strong. And then you get thrown this curveball and you think. Okay, here's some things I still need to work on, but we don't know sometimes until those things crop up. Yeah. Is it also the degree with which we perceive the curve curveball? Because I imagine everybody, even the most successful people uh, are are thrown curveballs. I, I mean, who goes through life with no curveballs? So, by the way, it'd probably be pretty boring if you got zero, if everything just always went your way and and like this. My perception, though, is um, the way with which people deal with the curveballs, because I'm still today find myself um, feeling utterly defeated over a very small, which like, you know, in retrospect, I go like, why did that stop me? That little thing, which now that I've beat it, which took so much energy um, and now I think of it as really dumb. And then I think of these guys who have you know, nations or, yeah, and I mean, how, how could we perceive anything much smaller than an entire nation like out to get somebody and they're still like shrugging it off like this is not a big deal. I'm going to overcome this, you know, and you go like that dude's mentally strong. Yeah, we all have these different things that sort of press our buttons. And sometimes it might seem like something small, but like certain things that just get in the way, whereas somebody else, it might just roll off their back. It's not a big deal. They run into a problem. They can speak up. They can move through it. They ask for what they need. They make it happen. And then but even that person will have something that still gets them. And it might look like it's small on the outside, but I guarantee we all have these buttons. And once they get pressed, it can send us into a tailspin. And it might be something at home, something at work. Anxiety might be the tough spot. And what makes us anxious is different for everybody. So while one person might freak out when they get stuck in a traffic jam, somebody else freaks out when they can't check their bank account because the Internet's down. I mean, these different things that send us that trigger us. And sometimes it is those small things. Sometimes it's the bigger things that we're dealing with in the background. Sometimes it has this cumulative effect, but strange things. And I kid you not, no matter how mentally strong I think I am, there's always something around the corner that 
reminds me I still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, I try to, I, I like stoicism a lot and I try to get into just this idea of like uh, the external world is going to do what the external world does. And I can re react to the external world. However, in whatever way I see fit. And often I'm, I'm fighting against the, whatever I perceive it to be the natural, my own natural reaction. So I, I feel like I should eat right now. I feel like um, I'm, I'm sober also. And I, it, sometimes there's this feeling of like the way I cope with this situation would be drugs or alcohol. And so then I'm battling that. Um, and then, you know, over time I get to the point where those urges become less and less, but I still have a lot of fatigue when, when I get those curveballs, and then I have to talk myself into like, this reaction doesn't have to be the reaction. It is the reaction currently that I'm experiencing, but how about if I try another reaction on like a coat and see how that feels, you know? Um, but it's all work. Is it all, it's work, right? It is, you know, I think sometimes we feel like, oh, the world's out to get me, or this is good or bad, or why me? I get tested all the time. But the truth is we're all tested all the time. And all of these battles that we're fighting and you, I, I'm a therapist. So I see people in my therapy office who from the outside look like they have it all together. I guarantee nobody in their life would ever imagine that they're struggling with something. And they come in and they'll say like, you're not going to believe what happened this week, or why am I still doing this? Or I'm so successful in this area in my life, yet this one thing I'm struggling with. And and then I'll ask them, like, who in your life would know that this is a problem? And nine times out of 10, they'll say no. Sometimes they'll even say, like, my partner doesn't know. My parents don't know. My kids don't know that I'm still battling these things because I feel like I'm the only one doing it. Well, what they don't know is the person who just came in before them said something very similar. And everybody's going through stuff and everybody's battling something. But we often think we're alone in that. And we don't talk enough about the things that we are struggling with. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of these things that mentally strong people don't do? So the first one on the list is that they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. Yes. That's a great one. <laughs> and this is one that people will get confused because they'll say, no, I just want to feel sorry for myself for a little while. Well, people get sadness confused with self-pity. It's okay to be sad. Being sad is actually really healthy. It's part of the healing process sometimes. But self-pity is when we dig in our heels and we think this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to deal with all these things. My problems are too big. And they, you just become helpless and hopeless. And then you stay stuck in that. When we feel sorry for ourselves, we think that there isn't a solution. So we don't do anything to make life better. And then we just end up complaining, whining, thinking how awful it is and convincing ourselves that life is never going to get any better. And so what is the solution there? Just don't feel sorry, like feel, experience sadness, but don't wallow in pity. Right. So when you notice you're crossing into that line of self-pity, it's about then saying, what kind of action can I take? And there's always something that you can do to make somebody's life better, maybe your own, but maybe somebody else's. And it, I think kindness is one of the best antidotes. Go out and just be kind to somebody when you're having a bad day and it can change your whole day around or to practice gratitude. When we have self-pity, we're like, oh, I deserve better. But when you practice gratitude, it's about saying, well, I still have some stuff that I don't even deserve. And just reminding yourself of those little things, like no matter how bad your day is, if you have clean water to drink and air to breathe and a, a jar of change at home, you're still doing better than plenty of people on the planet. And just reminding yourself of those little things can be like, okay, what am I going to do next? And 
the reason this is number one on my list is because it's right where I was in my life. When I, when I wrote the list, I was in this midst of self-pity. I had gone through this series of losses. My mom died and my husband died and my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh, and I was like, okay, this isn't fair. Like what else are you going to throw me? Talk about curveballs. But it was like, okay, I can sit around and think of how unfair this is, or I can say, yes, let's be sad and let's help me grieve, but let's not just go around talking about how the unfairness of life and, and keep myself stuck in this place. And I wanted to heal. And as a therapist, if there's anything I learned, it's sadness helps you heal, but self-pity doesn't. And we become angry and bitter. I did not want to become one of those people. So I had to figure out how do I not feel sorry for myself? And part of that was just about every day saying, I have a choice to make. I can make today the best I can. And I can try to make the world a little bit of a better place, even though my world seems awful. What are my options? And just by flipping that switch helped me to say, okay, what am I going to put into the world? It's not about feeling like I didn't get the hand that I wanted to be dealt, but it's instead about what do I want to put into the world? What changes do I want to make in, in my life? And how can I make the world just a little bit better? Yeah. You, um, I want to ask you about um, the first part that you talked about, like go out and be kind to somebody that's connecting it to action is connecting and even with gratitude like i can do gratitude in my head and it's all comparable and i completely agree and do and i love this because i do it all the time um just like how great life actually is in comparison to what it could be and suddenly i'm like okay good but is putting is actually connecting it to some action like writing it down or going out and um actually being kind saying hello in a kind way to to somebody is that um like doubly beneficial than like getting out of your head i just wondered it is so when we talk about changing your emotions if you want to shift your emotional state the two things you should do is change how you think and change how you feel and sometimes you can do both so just thinking okay well, what do i have to be grateful for today that'll give you a little boost perhaps you want a bigger boost write it down and then read it over again to really cement those thoughts but if you really want another extra boost write a kind letter to somebody and give it to them about how grateful you are for their life and it's kind of like all these different steps you can take or a continuum of you can just do a little something or you can do something bigger the bigger you do the bigger the impact that's going to have on you how you feel so yeah doing something kind for somebody taking action i think it just shows us that we have the power to create some kind of change in, in our world or in somebody else's life. And sometimes just those small things. I think one of the most powerful things you could do for somebody is write them a letter about how much you appreciate them. It doesn't cost any money. It's going to cost you a little bit of time. But you might change the course of somebody else's life. If you've never, whether it's your fourth grade teacher or it's uh, somebody you used to work with or a neighbor or loved one in your life, but just by writing them a letter and taking it's scary to do to if you're going to write this letter and give it to somebody, you have to be vulnerable, but it can have such a huge impact on people. Yeah. I've even found with doing that, um, I can change the way I feel about somebody like with, uh, you know, you go to work and you're not always like best friends with everybody you're working with. And I've had issues before where I'm like, no, nah, I don't love this person. But if I sit down and try to find things that I do like about them, by the time I'm done doing that, I tend to like them more, which right. then makes work more pleasant for me. I love that idea. And when another one strategy that I've learned too is to remember the people that love that person. So when you're looking across the, from a coworker and they're saying something and you just 
really don't like them in that moment or the clerk at a store or even a loved one, take a moment and think, well, this person has like probably a mom who loves them or they have have kids or family members who love them. And something about remembering that this person is loved by someone reminds us like, gee, I wouldn't want somebody to treat my loved one poorly. And then it just conjures up these feelings of gratitude, love, kindness. And then we tend to be nicer to them and and when we're nicer to them, they tend to be nicer to us. And it creates this positive cycle. Yeah, it feels very empathetic to do that. Yes, um, and, and there's also a hint of which I also like of uh, fake it till you make it. Like if you smile, like I have found when I force myself, like I'm in the worst mood ever. OK, just force myself to smile. And then soon enough, I do actually even if I'm just smiling about how silly it is that I'm pretending to smile, it helps. It's helpful. Yeah, there's tons of science behind that, that just forcing a smile triggers your brain to say, OK, you're happy and it triggers these feel good hormones. But there's lots of ways to fake it till you make it. And we'll, in therapy, sometimes we'll talk about act like the person you want to become. Somebody will say, I'd like you to give me some confidence. I'm like, well, I don't have any magic wands that will make you a confident person. But you know how you gain confidence? Get out there and do scary things. Take a college class. Introduce yourself to two new people. When you start acting like a confident person, then the feelings often follow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm uh, uh, anything. Um that I ever do that I find to be noble at all is all pretending to be a noble person. You know, like you see a shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot. What would a good person do? They'd return, they'd go out of their way to return. So, so then I'm doing that simply because I think that's what a noble person would do or, you know, picking up trash or helping somebody across the street, all of these things. It's really not innately something I would ever do, but I find myself doing them simply because the story I tell myself about noble, good people is that they're doing stuff like that. That's just it. And the, the labels that we put on ourselves or the labels other people put on us play a, a major role in our lives. So if somebody says to you that you're a fill in the blank kind of person, a confident kind of person, a noble kind of person, then we're like, yeah, I kind of like that. I'll act that way. So it can have a positive effect. And we can do that for ourselves. Like we find with little kids, if a parent says, thank you for helping me. Okay, that's fine. But when we say to the kid, like, you're a great helper, they're like, yeah, I'm a helper. So then they want to help you again the next time. And sometimes it has a negative effect. When I was a kid, everybody kept saying, you're painfully shy. Well, guess what? I stopped talking even more because you told me I was shy. So to figure out though, as an adult, we get to decide what kind of labels we want to put on ourselves. If I want to say I'm a noble person, then yeah, guess what? Then I'll start acting like I am a noble person. So I love that. I wish, I wish I could do it with self-confidence a little bit more and feel, you know, and, and maybe self-appreciation because I still do that still is a big struggle that I, that I have to talk, like, as you talked about, like convincing yourself that you can do something, I'm sometimes so low on um, myself that it's like, I have to remember that I can tie my shoes just because like, that's such a, an easy thing that I'm sure I can do that. I'm going like, okay, start there. You're not, a total piece of crap. You can tie your shoes. What else can you do? Build on that. You know how to drive a car like you're not completely worthless. Yeah. And sometimes it is just reminding ourselves of those little things. Our brains get stuck in this notion of who we are or what we're capable of doing. And then you look for evidence to the contrary. Well, yeah, I can do this. I can do that. I was nice to somebody once. I have done all of these things in my life. And just reminding yourself, okay, well, your brain lies to you. It'll trick you into thinking that you can't do stuff, that you're not good enough. But 
everything you think is certainly not true. And you can look for the evidence to remind yourself, actually, I'm doing better than I might give myself credit for sometimes. I, I really like the the kind of uh, narrative of like biological evolution when I think about uh, compulsion to eat and compulsion to consume uh, sweet things for some reason. Like it doesn't really matter today that it, our ancestors were mostly deprived of carbohydrates so that when they came across carbohydrates, their bodies told them, eat it all, eat all the carbo. So now we're not deprived of these things at all. So we walk into a 7-Eleven and some of us go like, eat it all. And this I can connect to some kind of primal thing. It just helps me rationalize everything. It, it, is what we're talking about now, is there anything that is connected to survival in those terms um, that I can help rationalize these things for myself. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So our brains are definitely primed to look for the negative, right? Back in the caveman days, you had to be on the lookout for the lion. So when you hear a noise, your brain was going to tell you, okay, that's a predator that's going to eat me. So our brains are really often just in that state of saying, okay, I'm going to look out for danger at all costs. I'm always going to be on the lookout for the bad stuff. And our survival depended on being part of the community. You don't want to get ostracized from your hunter and gatherer group because that probably meant if you struggled or you break your ankle, you're, you're going to starve to death because you don't have anybody else there. So we want to be part of the community. So our brain points out when we do something that maybe is something socially awkward, we make a mistake or we're not good enough because it's reminding you, hey, you need to stay part of the pack if you want to survive. So I do think our brains are often primed to tell us, okay, you're not good enough. Bad things are going to happen. Be on the lookout at all times. You're going to say something stupid and nobody's going to like you just because we want to belong and we want to make sure that we are on, on high alert at all times. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I do. When I really get deep down into um, what I, you know, I think a lot of it is not, I can't even, I'm not going to be able to figure it out on my own. But when I can, I do think um, much of uh, the, the things that plagued me all stem from fear. I really do. I think they all came from some kind of fear uh, at the deepest level. Um, and I'm fascinated by that because I can beat fear today by going, you're scared of that. Don't be scared of that. Right. But if it's not the kind of fear I recognize, right, like there's a tough guy out there who wants to fight you. That's easy. OK, what, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to get beat up. That's like the worst thing that's going to happen to me. But I, but I've been beat up before. That's not the end of the world. So I can go and challenge that. But when it's thoughts about myself and fear about um, embarrassing myself or something like that. This is, this is incapacitating to me sometimes. Yeah. And again, our brain, it's like this moment where our heart races and we, our palms get sweaty and we think this is horrible and awful. And our reaction when we come into anything that's anxiety provoking is to avoid it because that calms us down. And then we feel safe for a minute and then it reassures us. Okay. As long as I don't do that. And then we create crazy rules for ourselves. Like, if I just don't walk into a situation where I don't know anybody, then I'll be fine. If I just don't call and invite somebody over, then that'll be OK, because I don't have to face rejection. Or if I just make sure I'm always the, the first one to crack a joke, then people will like me. These rules that we don't even necessarily realize we're creating for ourselves, but we do it in a way to it's a way to kind of protect ourselves. And. Over time, sometimes we break those rules or we think, okay, now I need to, to keep myself safer. If we take panic attacks, for example, somebody who has a panic attack in the, in the um, 
cereal aisle at the grocery store might think, okay, now to keep myself safe, I just shouldn't go down the cereal aisle in the grocery store. And then they have a panic attack in the produce section. So they think, well, maybe I just shouldn't go to the grocery store at all. I'll just go to the, I'll just get my groceries delivered. And our worlds get smaller and smaller. And we all do this with different ways of trying to protect ourselves. If we're not careful, when we become aware that we're trying to shrink our worlds, we can then say, okay, how do I, how do I face my fear? What am I doing to, to live this smaller life? And anxiety and depression are kind of related. The things that we do to keep ourselves safe from anxiety means that we make our world small. But then when our world gets really small, we're more prone to depression because we're not out there doing exciting and fun things. And it's this balancing act of figuring out, okay, well, I don't want to just live in constant terror and be anxious all the time, but we also don't want to be depressed and figuring out where's that line? How do I challenge myself and put myself out there without making my world too small either? Figuring that out is tough sometimes. Is is this um, one of the things successful or mentally strong people don't do? So it's kind of all uh, in different parts of the book. This right. isn't this it specific bleeds thing, into it. It does into each chapter. And a lot of it is about facing our fears and and doing things that are scary. And so if I were to take the fear one, for example, there's a chapter about not fearing alone time. And people will often say to me, like, no, I love to be alone. And I'll say, well, what do you do with your alone time? And they'll say, you know, I'm scrolling through social media. I'm watching TV. But I'm really talking about being alone with your thoughts. And for some people, just being in your head and allowing yourself to sit and think or to be silent for five minutes is terrifying. It is utterly terrifying. Like, as you're saying this, my skin is crawling because I'll, I'll have a podcast on or I'll be reading. There, there is zero alone time for me. And that's the case with a lot of people. And sometimes people will even say, well, no, I'm an introvert. I love it. But then they'll still say, well, I'm always listening to a podcast. I'm always doing something. And they did this survey where they asked people, would you rather sit quietly and meditate for 15 minutes or uh, get submitted to an electric shock? And like 25% of the women say, go ahead and zap me. And then 75% of the men opt for the electric shock just because it is so scary to be alone in our own heads because we're, we just don't want to listen to that narrator that puts us down, that says awful things, that reminds you of those mistakes you made in the past or predicts awful things that are going to happen in the future. So we do everything we can to drown it out. And in today's world, we don't really have to be alone with our thoughts. You have your phone with you probably 24-7 and you have constant the constant ability to be connected watch tv talk to people there's so much going on that we don't have to and sometimes we think it's not productive to spend five minutes of silence or we just convince ourselves we don't have time to do it but it's tough it's exhausting to feel like you can't be alone with your own brain too yeah i for sure choose the shock i mean if you said 25 minutes of electrocution versus 25 minutes alone then I take the 25 minutes alone. But if you're talking about a one second shock, I take the shock. No problem. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, and this is disappointing. I say that to you slightly disappointed with myself, but no, I take the shock for sure. Um, how do I, what, what's the, what's the solution here? Well, you know, a lot of people talk about like formal meditation, which sounds so scary to a lot of people. And then it sounds like, well, I have to take a class or I have to figure this out. And then people will say, I'm bad at meditating. Well, nobody's bad at meditating. It's just a matter of, knowing, okay, you just need more practice redirecting your thoughts, but you don't even necessarily have to meditate. If that's not your thing, don't try to force yourself to do it. It might be writing in a journal without anything on in the background. And you might start small. Maybe you play music that doesn't have lyrics at first in the background while you're writing a journal. Maybe you just say, I'm going to write in a gratitude journal where for I'm going to come up with three things I'm grateful for. And if that takes me 60 seconds, great. 
and and then move on with your day. But these really small steps that we can take to to get more comfortable with being alone with our thoughts. And sometimes people say, "I go for a walk and don't listen to music." Other people say, "I uh, you know just drive in the car for a few minutes so that they're doing something while they're alone with their thoughts." Other people just say, "All right, I'm going to give myself 60 seconds to just sit and think about nothing, and then work their way up to just maybe even just 10 minutes a day." Right. And you, and doing that as a practice is how you would increase it like a minute because it, it would be hard. I, I could I could confront a minute. Uh, you know, a minute is not a very long time. But if you, uh, you know, I have some friends who meditate and they're doing it for a half an hour, 45 minutes. I couldn't do that. And, you know, that may never be your saying. I think that's OK to just say it's not, you know, maybe meditation is not it. But or you can even give yourself a, a quick job to do, whether it's okay, I'm going to think of five things I'm grateful for. And when you have a task in your head, then it's not quite as bad. How about when you go to sleep at night? Do you, is it silent at night or do you listen to something while you're going to sleep? I listen to something while I'm going to sleep. My wife likes silence. I have a headphone in and I'm listening to a book or a podcast. So you always have literally always have something going on. And for a lot of people, that's what they'll say is, well, I couldn't sleep if I didn't have the TV on, or I couldn't sleep if I weren't listening to something because, and it's true. At first it would be way too scary. Your nervous system is going to be so jacked up. You probably aren't going to sleep because it would feel scary. So again, I think those little increments of, okay, here's how I get used to it. Here's how I tolerate the discomfort, very small doses. Yeah. Yeah. When audible added the uh, sleep, uh, feature because there was a point in time where it would just roll on and on and I'd wind up knocking the headphone out at some point in my sleep and wake up with it out which was good but when they installed the um, feature to set it for like a half an hour I was like oh this is forever this is what I'm doing you know I could get through right you know some big Will Durant encyclopedic on history it's going to be great um, but yeah I mean I, that, 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 I, I feel very scared thinking about this, but I, I mean, going to sleep would be the time to do it because uh, that's an easy time when you when you you were at one point accustomed to being alone, unless you went from infancy through with your parents playing you music or something. Right. And it might just be a matter of, if, you know, when meditating isn't your thing, there's tons of breathing exercises, which some of those start to get really complicated, too. But. I just like there's one called smell the pizza where you pretend like you're smelling a piece of pizza, breathe in slowly through your nose like you're breathing in this delicious piece of pizza, but the pizza's hot. So you have to cool it off and you breathe it back out through your mouth like you're cooling it down and just doing that a few times. And then it can it can help you just be like, OK, I'm, I'm just going to focus on my breathing and other thoughts will pop into your head. But you get used to just saying, OK, well, I'm now distracted thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow or what I didn't get done today. But you just kind of let it go, go back to breathing again. And sometimes people find that to be helpful after a while where they can just say, OK, I'm going to calm the thoughts. And if they come and go, that's OK. But to not be judgmental about the thoughts that pop into our head, sometimes people are like, oh, and then I started worrying about what was going to happen tomorrow. I'm so stupid. Why can't I just concentrate? And then it ends up in this cycle of them beating themselves up for for uh, just because their mind got distracted for a second. Yeah. I mean, as we sit here talking and I, I fear that like the people who do this and they're convinced of it, I would despise. But I feel like if I spent time like talking to myself about things that I feel good about myself, you know, um, things that I know I can do well, even if it's tie my shoes, you know, or make my kids a sandwich or something like that, really inane. But 
um, maybe I would wind up feeling better about myself in, in that way, you know? Yeah. And I always tell people sometimes it's just about, um, yeah, thinking about the positive, what are three good things I did today? And then your brain will be like, yeah, but guess what you didn't do today? But you bring it back to no, here's what I did. And maybe it's, I got out of bed today. Maybe that's something to celebrate or I made lunch or I managed to go for a walk, whatever it was, but here are three good things I did today. Uh, and then maybe here are three things I hope to do tomorrow. Right. And giving yourself those little tasks to do rather than just letting your brain be like the wild, wild west and letting it go wherever it wants to go. Yeah. What are some other things uh, mentally strong people don't do? I think the biggest one that people talk about the most is chapter two, which is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. And this is that tendency that we all have where we say something like, my boss ruined my day. My mother makes me feel bad about myself. Um, my friend wastes my time. And we forget, no, you're in control. It's up to you. How you think about yourself, how you feel about yourself, how you spend your time, who you spend it with. That's all on you. We don't like to take responsibility for that because it means, you know, gee, I let somebody waste my time or I let somebody take advantage of me or I let my self-worth be dependent on how much somebody likes me today or how nice they were to me. So that's tough to do. And even though I've been talking about this for years, I still will say things like, oh, I have to go to the grocery store. No, you don't even have to go to the grocery store. Maybe you're not going to buy fresh lettuce today, but it doesn't mean you're, you have to go. It's a choice. And just taking back that power sometimes is just your reminder of, okay, I'm in control of my life, my happiness, how I want to live. And I really shouldn't blame anybody else for those things. And so that's really just perspective and how you're phrasing things in order to have that perspective. Oh, yeah. Our language is powerful. And just rephrasing the way that we say things. I was like, oh, again, so-and-so makes me feel mad or made me mad today. No, they didn't make you mad. You got upset and maybe their behavior affected your feelings, but they didn't force you to feel that way. And just shifting our language can make a huge difference in reminding ourselves, all right, maybe I don't have the best situation around me, but it's kind of goes back to stoicism. It's up to me to decide how I respond to whatever situation I find myself in. Yeah, this is um, this is something that I, I I ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I work on, I actively work on this because I, I think it's, I think it's so dead on accurate um, and like, even with, uh, an example, like I have to go to the grocery store. Uh, I want to go to the grocery store is a perfectly fine. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you just, it is just perspective in that way. If, if it's something that's be that you're doing in a harried manner, that's exhausting and upsetting for some reason, is there anything beneficial, any way to look at it in a way that is like, oh, I really want to make, I want to make a fun dinner. So I'm going to go to the grocery store and get the things. And, and you know what I mean? Like, I really do think that perspective is, is such a integral part of this. It's why I'm fascinated by people that just innately have that perspective, you know? Right. It's all about those conversations we have ourselves with ourselves every step along the way. I'm one of those people that would naturally be in a hurry. I could have no plans and I go to the grocery store. And for some reason, I think I have to like rush through the grocery store <laughs> I have to have that conversation with myself of like, there is really no reason to be in a hurry. You might as well enjoy the journey. This may be the most exciting thing you do today. So you might as well make the best of it. And just to having those little reminders and those conversations that we have with ourselves to say like, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking in a certain way? How do I make sure that I do take a different perspective so that I can get the best out of my day again? life we should enjoy every day that we have to the fullest. And how do you do that? Sometimes it's just reframing the way that you think. Is a, a lot of um, what I struggle with is, is comes down to choice and choosing to do, you know, there's, there's an idea of like, a, a, if I have a goal that is clearly not like a very short term goal, right? Like um, I made it to the gym today. That was a very short term goal. But if I'm looking at the overall reason why I consistently go to the gym, that's a very long term goal. And so just the way I'm kind of posing that to myself can have a big impact. Like when I, when I consider that um, food is fuel and I have a long-term goal with my body, this, this suddenly becomes an easier way to make short-term decisions and have a different perspective on them. Right, because there's the alternative of saying to yourself, this piece of cake and this cookie won't really matter over the course of my life, so I might as well have it. And then dinner rolls around and you tell yourself, eating four slices of pizza won't really hurt me, so I should just have it. So then to take that other shift of, well, because you could argue too, well, if I miss one day at the gym, it's not going to make or break my entire workout routine. But then when you look at the other perspective of, yeah, but consistently going to the gym every day will make a huge difference. So why not today? Why not make today one of those days that I go? And that's how we talk ourselves into good habits and then try to talk ourselves out of bad habits. And our brain plays all these tricks on us because it will use it to our advantage sometimes. And then sometimes it's all trying to tempt us into these other things. And it will even disguise things as like self-care. You deserve a day off. You should really not go to the gym today. You've been working so hard and your body probably needs another day of rest. 
and we could easily self-sabotage, but we do it in a way that convinces us, no, I just needed to rest 17 days in a row. <laughs> and before we forget, before we even realize it, we've gotten completely derailed. Yeah. And, and like with a diet, if you're, if you're going to be hungry too, because then hunger, it, I do think that um, not sleeping well and being hungry, these will have an even bigger emotional impact. So you're reacting even bigger. And so you get this craving or this urge. And it's like, if I'm telling myself I can't have that because I'm a pre piece of garbage, right? And I don't deserve it or whatever plethora of things I've told myself to keep myself away from food. I find that doing it in that negative way is uh, less successful over the long term, right? Finding a positive reason to keep on my course to, to stay with whatever path I've determined is, is better long term doing that in a positive manner uh, is, is more beneficial. I've found. Yeah, I think it definitely is when we, again, I guess it goes back to that thing about like fear. Are we doing this just to avoid something awful or are we doing this because we want to become better? And I run a timed mile every day and I always try to see how fast I can run it. And I've done it sort of everything in my brain. Like I'm going to talk to myself about, I'm going to stay in the moment. I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to give myself positive affirmations, but I've had days too, where I think I'm, I'm going to suddenly be reminded of every negative thing anybody ever said about my body or my weight as a kid. And I have those tapes playing in my head. Definitely doesn't make me run any faster. I get like upset, but it doesn't like fuel me into crossing the finish line any faster. But for some reason, I think sometimes we think that that harsh self-criticism is somehow going to motivate us. All the evidence is to the contrary, that it's self-compassion that really creates a positive, lasting change in our lives. But sometimes we're just way too hard on ourselves. And then we think, yeah, but I deserve this. Or this is if I talk to myself this way, that will motivate me tomorrow. But none of that's actually accurate. The science is there that says being kind to ourselves is really the key to doing better. Yeah, it becomes so tricky too because there's a point and we arrive in the present where there is a movement and and you know i i know that these things apply to success in any field but but i i will always kind of try to turn it into where i'm trying to be successful you know like uh i'm not really a business person and i have no aspirations there so i'm not thinking in that i'm thinking in terms of maintaining sobriety and maintaining weight loss and increasing strength and increasing cardio. Like those are really the areas I'm looking at them. Um, and I do think that, uh, th that self-care and being kind to yourself and positive and believing in yourself are really senior to everything, because I don't think, I don't think it's very easy to be successful at something if you're telling yourself you're going to fail. Right. So, so there's the, the first one, but then the paradigm is that for many people who have failed at diets and, and I do think that diet culture is pretty gross and, and not super healthy. Then now there's the alternative where it's like, be kind to yourself and, and, and dieting is unhealthy and being obese is healthy. And then I go like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're now in this weird vortex of like anything is anything and perspective and, and, you know, and it gets very, very confusing, right? It, it's, it's, um, it's actually a hard thing to navigate. It's not just easy. It is. And we seem to get confused about like, whether I'm a, I'm a good 
person or or I'm a, I'm a bad person or I made a bad choice, right? And knowing like, okay, I can still be a good person, but maybe I made a bad choice or I took too long off from the gym or I made some bad eating choices, but that's okay. I can still be a good person. And with knowing that, yeah, you can accept yourself, but you can balance self-acceptance with self-improvement. Because I'll hear <laughs> some people say like, no, I'm never done. I'm never good enough. I'm like, gee, you know, give yourself a break, cut yourself some slack sometimes. But on the other hand, you see people that are like, eh, you know, I'm living in my mom's basement and I have all these health issues and all this stuff going on, but you know, I'm good like I am. And they really don't have any aspirations to ever improve themselves. So to figure out, well, how, how do you find that line so that, yeah, you can be okay with yourself, but that you can still be growing and hopefully evolving and becoming a better person at the same time. Yeah. It's tricky, right? It is. It is. And then like, are you ever like really done? Well, no, I don't think so. Cause again, even when you're like, okay, my life is pretty good right now. Again, you're going to get those curveballs, and you think, okay, well, I still have some stuff to work on. Yeah. And I think of it, are you ever really done? I, I think that nothing in life is ever really done. Like, are you, are you done eating? Yeah. For now I'm going to eat again. You know what I mean? I, I gotta, I gotta figure out my food. I can't just let it go for it. Like I have a wife and if, if I just go like, well, I'm married, so I don't have to do anything there anymore. That relationship is going to fall apart, right? You have a kid and it's like, well, I have a kid. I'm just going to turn her over to the state and let them raise her. Like what? I, I, I think with anything, there is constantly going to be some involvement in going like, what do we see for the future? Whether it's a, your body or a, a relationship with another or your house or any of these things work, all of it requires some effort towards where you see it going in the future. Right. Because sometimes people will say, well, I don't need to work on mental strength. I'm strong enough. Well, Ethan, you know, if you don't go to the gym, your muscles and you wouldn't like lift weights for a week and then be like, "Woo, done lift. You know, <laughs> I don't ever need to lift weights again. It doesn't make sense. That's why you need to make sure that we're working on things all the time. If you want to keep your mind sharp, if you want to keep your skills sharp, you always have to keep working on them. Well, this is fascinating because I I do have ways to convince myself that I'm not a total piece of garbage. And it usually is like I'm, in, you know, I wake up. And sometimes I wake up and I'm in a great mood. And sometimes I wake up and I'm like, want to pull the covers over my head and order Uber Eats or whatever version of delivery food I feel like eating that day and not go to the gym and turn on the TV and zone out. And usually it's in the mirror while I'm brushing my teeth and I have no shirt on. And I just see like maybe a little bit of my trapezius muscle. And I go like, okay, that that's better than it was at one point. So I've improved that. What else have I improved? And suddenly like this, like, you know, like magic eye thing, I, I start to see more and more good and it's that, but I never thought of it in terms of like, I know how to increase strength at the gym. You do it through progressive overload. You do a little bit and then you do a little bit more and then you do a little bit more and then you take a break and then you start over with doing and you increase. And like, it's fascinating talking to you because like I can apply all of those principles to this kind of mental stuff too. Yeah. And I did it the other way. So I wrote books about mental strength and then I thought, I wonder what it's like to get in shape. So I hired a trainer and he didn't know what I did for work. And he said, a lot of this is going to be mental. And I said, I got it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you tell me what to do. I'll do it. And so we did this like 
six pack ab challenge in 30 days just to see if it was possible. And I thought, this is so cool. A lot of the things that we do in terms of mental strength, you just apply it to physical strength. Very, very similar about doing it, facing a lot of the same fears and discomforts, but knowing that you can do it in a very systematic way made a lot of um made a lot of sense. I had worked out kind of my whole life a little bit here, a little bit there, but not in a, I never had a, a strategy or a real plan. It was like, just go do cardio if you feel like it or lift a few weights if you want to. So then once I had a clear plan, I was like, oh, this makes total sense. But same can be said for mental strength. Once you have a clear plan of how to do it. And that's why I started talking about what not to do, because I thought, when it comes to physical strength, okay, I used to like do cardio and stuff, but nobody told me like, by the way, don't eat junk food. And like, literally <laughs> I'd be like, you know, on the way to the gym with a donut in my hand. And I didn't realize like, you know, 20 minutes on the treadmill does not even come close to, you know, the calories I was taking in with a donut. So I thought if I just tell people what not to do when it comes to mental strength, like get rid of these habits. Like I guarantee people already have plenty of good habits, but if you get rid of those little ones that are holding you back and keeping you stuck, then your good habits become a lot more effective. Yeah, no, no. It makes a lot of sense. Like there, um, you know, you go to the gym and, and one of the very early, or it actually uh, required me getting injured a couple of times and a couple of times with such severe injuries that you, you can't work out and you're going like, God, I can, I never want that to happen again. So it's like, no, you can't go to failure every day. You can't, so there are those those things. Yeah. Junk food is not going to help really uh, with your gym performance. Um, and, and then I go like maybe there's some outliers. But to, to, to your point, too, there, there are probably some people who get off on negativity and they just want to beat other people's perceptions and, and, you know, tell, you know, having somebody yelling at them in the gym you're a piece of garbage might make them perform more but but it's not good for me and and it's not good for a lot of the people i know i think that positive reinforcement um tends to work better from what i've seen so this is all anecdotal this is not like i did no scientific research on this um but it's been my experience and you know so yeah there's and i think for most of us you know the carrot works better than the stick but there is some research too that people with really low self-esteem find friends that tend to put them down because it's like, okay, as long as if I put myself down in my own head and then I surround myself with people who also put me down, then it kind of feels familiar and it feels comfortable and I stay stuck there. Because if you have low self-esteem and somebody gives you a compliment, it's really uncomfortable. It makes us cringe because we're like, oh, I'm not really comfortable with you seeing me that way because it doesn't line up with the way I see myself in my head. So I suspect there are some people that if you put them down while they're running on the treadmill, it's like, yeah, this matches what's in my head. I'm not good enough <laughs> and I'm horrible and I'm awful. But for the vast majority of us, I'm like, wait, why would I go to the gym to get verbally abused by somebody? I do enough of that to myself. I don't need somebody else to do it for me. Yeah. That's amazing. I've never once thought of applying those those kind of practices to the mental stuff. It's always just been like, how do I get through this? It's very hard and I'm kind of white knuckling it mentally. And with uh, the physical stuff, it's all kind of like this scientific, um, you know, if I go on Monday, here's what I'm going to do. And then on the following Monday, I'm going to increase it by this much. And if I'm uh, trying to cut fat, I'm going to eat this many calories. And then, over, you know, a month later, I'm going to decrease a little bit because I'm not burning as much because I'm smaller. Um, so I think applying those kind of principles to like 
How do I feel better about myself? Okay, now I'm going to repeat that and I'm going to do it more. You know, I, I'm, this is like a, kind of an exciting exercise that I'm going to do. And wouldn't it just make sense if we learned this stuff as kids? You know, you think, gosh, if only we taught younger people, like here are this, the building blocks, here's the science, here's those little things you can do every day that make a huge difference to, to how you feel, how you feel about yourself and the potential that you see for your life. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question because this just led me to a, a thought and I want, I want to know your take on it. Um, do you think that in modernity and i know that the word modernity doesn't mean right now in fact it's a period of time that we're past but like in the present when we have uh participation trophies for kids and stuff like that that were because for me i go like i i agree i think that uh learning to be proud of yourself and to feel good about yourself i think it's very valuable but I, but I do have some concerns if, um, if everybody is always, do you, do you get what I'm saying? I don't want to say anything, not PC or offend anyone, but like, right. I do have some concerns about that. Yeah. And I'll hear people say things like, well, kids are resilient. Well, they're not born resilient. Otherwise we'd all be super resilient because we were once kids too. But the truth is we need to give them skills of how do you handle being rejected? What happens when you do come in last place? And then we don't need to then feel like we're building their self-esteem by giving them all participation trophies. Then they'll know it's okay if I came in last or if this, I'm not good at this, I have choices. I can keep working. I can figure out things like grit and perseverance and, and rejection and failure and uh, hard work. But I think we're not giving kids a lot of those skills. So we, to make up for that, we then hand them all the, the blue ribbon and think, yeah, now everybody feels good. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that we're raising kids who feel great because they're like, well, everybody got one and I didn't even put in any effort and I got one anyway. If we really want them to feel good, it would be about having them work hard and know sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But here are the skills you, you can use in both cases. How do you appreciate your accomplishments and enjoy them? And then how do you also fail and still feel okay about yourself? Yes, exactly. Because I know the difference between, um, and I'm always going to go back to like weight loss, weight gain. This is just how my mind works. I'm hyper-focused on this. I apologize. But um, having lost weight, and worked towards some goal and achieved it and had a friend who said, you look great. I can tell you've done something. And I go like, thank you. And I feel a sense of pride and accomplishment versus um, having gained weight, knowing I'm not in as good a shape and then having a friend say, you look great. And then realizing like, well, that person just hands out the compliment. You look great. There's no real meaning behind it. And I feel worse because I know I didn't accomplish something, you know, so I think maybe that could apply broadly to this thing of like, we're all going to run a race and everybody's going to get a trophy and you come in last place and you're like, I got a trophy. I, what, what is this? Everybody's exactly the same, which I just think is not true. And I like that example that you gave, because when we think somebody's like giving us a compliment and it's not genuine or they're giving us something that we didn't earn we then know they think we're too weak to handle the truth or that we aren't strong enough to deal with rejection, failure, criticism, something like that. And that feels really bad when we think this person doesn't trust that I have the knowledge or the skills to, to be okay if they don't give me these fake compliments or this ribbon that really means nothing. Yeah. And then if we are um, 
rewarding if we if we go back to the kids thing with particip- participation trophies and we're just everyone is rewarded equally where is any kind of um, motivation to I, I don't know i've always liked the uh, for me it's always felt good when i've tried it's always about myself it's always about doing uh, exceeding my own uh, expectations for myself but if if I have no expectations for myself, if I'm going to get a reward, no matter what I do, then where is the, you know what I mean? It gets, that again, gets very complicated for me in my head of like, I think we, I like this thing of, of taught resiliency. Right. Because I think there's this notion that if we give out trophies to everybody, then, you know, there's no competition and people won't feel bad but we have like this false idea about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Well, we know that rewards often can lead to external rewards can lead to internal motivation down the road. You might need to be rewarded at first. This is why with your four-year-old who's learning a new skill at home, whether it's sleeping in their own bed, sticker charts work at first. Cause then they're like, yes, I get a sticker. Well, when they're 20, you aren't still giving them a sticker anymore. They've learned to do that on their own. And when we give out trophies for hard work, we're just teaching kids like, yeah, okay. When with hard work, then eventually kind of become intrinsically motivated or the kid who doesn't do as well might then have more motivation to say, yeah, I can do better next time. And, but I think we get that confused. We think once we give everybody a a participation trophy that somehow we're leveling the playing field and then all the kids will be motivated, but that's not how motivation works. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It it doesn't seem to me that that's how motivation works. And again, I haven't done so. I haven't read papers on this, but it seems to me that it would be counterintuitive in that way. Yes, um, I think so. Yeah. Um, all right. What are what are what, like? What's one more thing that uh, successful mentally? I keep thinking successful, but it's mentally strong people don't do. Uh, that they don't try to please everyone. Nice. Right. And for those of us that have been people pleasers, we know how hard this one is to break. <sighs> but then when you just really sit back and you think, well, why am I trying to make other people happy? Just like we need to take responsibility for how we feel. We need to let other people take responsibility for how they feel. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, try to make your spouse happy or that you shouldn't do things that make your kids happy. Obviously, we want people in our lives to find enjoyment. And if we get to be part of that, that's rewarding. But we shouldn't feel like we're responsible for their emotions all the time. I have I work with parents that will try to cheer their kids up when they're sad because they feel responsible for how their kids feel or people that will you know, run around saying yes to everything that they're asked of because they don't want to disappoint anyone. I think if I say no, you'll think less of me or I might disappoint you and then we won't be friends anymore. I don't want somebody to be upset because then you might not like me. That's a really exhausting way to live. And it's hard to get out of those patterns to learn, okay, I can say no to people. I can speak up. I can share my opinion. But it boils right down to sometimes I'll work with people who say, my friend's asking where to go to lunch. And I just say, I don't care. So then we end up going to some restaurant that I really don't like. But I didn't dare say, hey, I actually like this one over here. I like Chinese food or I don't like Mexican food or uh, just because like we sort of forget. And that one can kind of go back to the alone time one, too. When we spend a little bit of time alone, we get to know ourselves because sometimes we forget who we are or what we like. We just kind of blend in with everybody around us and lose sight of our own values. How hard is it to to actually come up with what our own values are? You know, like like this to me is is a very, very tricky one that that I deal with a lot because it's like, you know, everybody wants Mexican food. I want Chinese 
how much am I willing to impose my will on the group? You know what I mean? And like, at some point, like, um, uh, how, you know, from the fountainhead, Howard Rourke was this guy who just didn't care if he pleased or displeased anyone, he was just going to do what he wanted to do. And now I look at him and I go like, I admire some aspects of that, but there's also an extremity there, right? <laughs> like there's gotta right. be a balance, but I find, I find myself doing a, a battle with where that balance should be all the time. Right. And being agreeable and saying, yeah, I'm going to go along. I can go with the flow or I just kind of don't like this, but I, it's fine. I'm not going to ruin anybody else's day by saying it, if I don't like it or I'll go with it. But, but then knowing that you don't have to, or if you speak up and somebody doesn't like it, but you're staying true to who you are, that that's okay. Or if somebody criticizes you, like one thing is unsolicited advice. People will always tell you what they think you should be doing. Often it's not even people who have any idea if somebody gives you, if I give you acting advice, you should not follow it because I know nothing about the world of acting. Uh, or if somebody gives me advice about writing a book, who's never written a book, but yet people do it all the time. And yet sometimes we think we I have to at least, you know, entertain this person or be kind to them. But then we confuse being kind with, with actually following their advice or we take it too far. So I do think there's a balancing act to be had, but once we become a little bit clearer on what's really important to us, life gets a lot easier. I'll do this exercise with parents sometimes and I'll ask them, would you rather the teacher said that you had the kindest kid in the class or the smartest kid? And a lot of parents are like, oh, I definitely want the kindest kid in the class. I want the smartest kid. I don't give a shit if my kids are kind. Be smart. And then I've always had the parents that are like, I would like my kid to be both. Like, okay, <laughs> the kindest and the smartest, not a right. problem. But then they'll go home and I'll challenge them. Ask your kid what they would rather have. And like, sometimes I'll um, um, speak at a school in the afternoon and I'll ask the kids, would your parents rather that you be the smartest or the kindest? 99% of the kids say, my parents want me to be the smartest kid. But then when I ask the parents, like 90% right. of the parents are all, no, I want the kindest kid. I'm like, yeah. are you saying this because you think this is socially appropriate right now? Because that's an example of people pleasing. Or is that really your value? And in the message hasn't gotten to kids because we talk about homework and we talk about how did you do on that test today? But we don't really say, who are you kind to at recess? And then when you know those things, it just gets a little bit easier. So then when your kid's doing their homework and their friend calls upset, do you want them to talk to their friend because that's the kind thing to do? Or do you want them to focus on their homework? Again, no judgment. Whatever you want that your kid to do in life is up to you and your household. But but just knowing what are your values makes it so much easier to not feel like you have to please everyone. Then you can say, here's my life. This is what I'm doing. And not everybody has to be happy about it. Obviously, much easier said than done, though. It is, it is so complicated, especially when dealing with kids. But no. I, I myself struggle with this a lot. And I, I think it comes down to like the hard line I make is with integrity and where, where I go, like if, if this action or act that I think that the, the group wants me to participate in is going to be destructive to what I believe is truly morally correct for myself, I, I have to um, bow out. Right. That's, but that is fairly easy, right? Because these things are big issues that you can go like, I'm not participating in. Um, but I do think it comes down to, uh, you know, and I, I know there's like a, a debate between nature versus nurture. And, and 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 I do think kids are often all very different. But, um, you know, like regardless of how they're raised, um, I, I have four daughters and this, you know, and and having um, raised them during me, too, it, it was like 
this is a big deal. You don't have to please people. I want you to vocally um, shout no, even if it's your reaction is more, bigger than um, warranted, uh, you know, because even if we culturally shift, I don't trust everyone. So all I can do is try to affect you and, and try to get you to be the one who is not going to participate in something you don't want to participate in. And that's a good point, too. So if a parent says, I want a value kindness. Well, what about when your kid's friend says, can I cheat off your homework? Well, being kind might say, yes, here you go. I don't want you to waste your night doing these awful math problems. But then you're like, well, what are your values in terms of honesty and integrity and those sorts of things, too? And where does kindness come in? And it's complicated. It's tricky. Yeah. And since we've, we've been talking about uh, health and weight and those sorts of things, here's an interesting one for you. When it comes to people pleasing, Somebody who's on a diet is going to struggle more than than somebody who's not a people pleaser. If you put a bowl of chips on a table and the person across from them eats 12 chips, the people pleaser is likely to eat 12 chips, too. We match the other person one for one. And so a lot of people who struggle to meet their goals in life will come to that conclusion. Well, yeah, I'm trying to make the people around me. I don't want that person to feel uncomfortable if they're still eating. So I'll keep eating while they're while they're eating, even if it means I'm blowing my diet. But they're. I don't want them to be uncomfortable because then I feel uncomfortable and weighing those sorts of things uh, into their plan and figuring that out because people pleasing, although it seems on the surface, like, okay, it's a sort of a simple thing. It gets really complex right down to our goals and our willingness to sabotage ourselves sometimes because of other people's comfort level. Amy, years and years of feeling like a total piece of garbage because I wasn't eating at the restaurant with my wife and kids. I know all about this. This is a heavy duty deal. And this is fascinating too, because I've read studies on the contagion of social behavior and like to, to imagine that it comes down to this is wild. And, and what an idea, even if you want to break the cycle, just by going that, like, I'm going to count how many chips that person ate and I'm not going to eat that many. I'm, I'm right. going to have chips, but I'm not going to match them. And it's just to fight against this urge to be amenable to everyone. Yeah. And think, you know, we usually don't even notice it. We just do it. And people aren't aware of like, gee, you just finished off the other half of that bowl of M&Ms or that bag of chips. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Because people will say, well, you know, they were still eating or I got caught up in the moment and I wanted to make them happy. Just quite interesting. It's fascinating to me that we do these things. We don't even realize it. And the people that we surround ourselves with make such an impact on our choices, our behavior. Emotions can be contagious. You hang out with somebody who's anxious. We get anxious. Hang out with happy people. Sometimes it rubs off on us. But just knowing that not only do we match their behavior, but sometimes we just pick up on their emotional state, too. Yeah, no, I would feel like bad to the waiter who. I'm not ordering anything at the restaurant. Therefore, that's going to reduce their tip by whatever percentage. And now I feel guilty. No, people pleasing. That's a really, really wild one um, that I can't wait to just actively work against. I hear you. It's one that I certainly work on regularly as well. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I want to talk to you again. I want to eventually get through all 13 of these. I guess I should just read the book. Well, thank you. I'm happy to come back anytime. And I'm hoping that we'll get you on my podcast as well. Cause I yes. want to see you more. hundred <laughs> percent. Awesome. Th- thank you. Thank you. And now for the Q and a, that was good. <laughs> that was, it was okay. Um, where is, and my- now for the Q and a, Oh, I like that one. That was good. Uh, all right. So let's see how many we can do here. Um, did it go? Oh, here it is. Okay, got it. You want to say it? I did. I said it. Oh, but I was like still looking for the paper. Let's do it again. Yeah, but but we got it. No, we got it. We're good. All of this stays in. Thanks, okay, Jeff. fine. Fine. I'm really sorry to everyone for this. Um, no, here- I want them to know when you are just trying to humiliate them. Oh, my God. Which is what you're clearly doing right now. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Okay, here's a question for you from Roland. Hi, Roland. He says, let me start by thanking you for being so transparent about your relationship with food. Your last conversation with Kevin Smith about skin is a topic that doesn't get enough attention. And it's awesome that you guys talked about it. I've been battling with my eating disorder for my entire life. Been living in this cycle of overeating for two to three years, then losing weight and keeping it off for another two to three before I relapse again. I had my worst relapse two years ago, where I went from training six days a week to couch potato, gaining 80 plus pounds in the process. Since you say then, two years ago? Yeah. So pandemic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that what it's that about, is? It's about right. Yeah. If anything, my experience with training is holding me back as there's a lot of ego involved in how I'm supposed to train, what I'm supposed to eat. My question to you. How did you find courage to lose weight after your relapse? And what do you think is a healthy way to start again after failing so many times? Oh, man, I know this ego thing all too well. I um, the thing that pops into my head right now is something I'm dealing with right now, which is there was a point in my life where I had like like really, really good cardio. And and I say really, really good cardio. This is not hyperbolic. I did a full marathon on a rowing machine and 
that wasn't that hard for me. Um, 49,000 meters in just over three hours. So three hours of rowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I have a couple of friends who are into um, exercise and they're rowing and they keep sending me their times and their splits. And I did this many meters in this short of a time. Here was my average split and this is my pace. And how many watts could you do and how many calories in a minute could you burn and all of this. And I'm so out of the cardio game that I'm like, oh, my God, if I even wanted to, you know, dip my toe back into this, it would be embarrassing to me right now. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's it's it, this is a, a point where I like I was really good at something and now I'm embarrassingly bad at something. And so I can completely understand it. And as far as like weight gain goes, I've gained weight so many times. Yeah. The idea of the gym I'm in now most frequently, if I gained 50 or 100 pounds and had to go there and work out, that would be really tough. And seeing all the people that I see every day and nod hello to um, and had to confront like, oh, my God what happened to him that would be so hard but i've done that i think i probably i don't know that i would jump right into the place i was going to when i was at my peak or i might you know get a little bit of progress under my belt first so that i felt like um i was going back into it on a success rather than at the peak of a failure if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. I'm not to say you shouldn't do that. Like for sure, you just got to start and start anywhere. Start with a walk or um, if you have this feeling like you've um, regressed, it's just it's like ignore all of that stuff as much as you can and just begin and mm. begin anywhere. Begin with, you know removing a meal or changing a a carb or a fat to a a vegetable or a protein. You know what I mean? Like whatever your deal is, um, start and, uh, and, and get some, get, get a little momentum under your belt. And then that momentum I found can carry you through the embarrassment because, because the embarrassment is, is I've found most heavy when we're just failing, when we're just mm. uh, succumbing and doing badly. Um, and the minute we get a little bit of um, success, the the failure seems less. And so we can use that to keep climbing and, and digging ourselves out of this pit. That's my advice. Yeah, that's great advice. That's such a that thing that you just said really resonates with me of like, it's the worst when we're just at the bottom and we're not but like even a day of a good choice or as you said a small change less this more that it's, it's really yeah funny. and i guess i'm also talking about if we if we go like when i was really successful i was eating in this way every day mm-hmm. and exercising this much every day and doing it this many times a week right or whatever it is i think for me the mistake has been trying to just get Uh, like on day one, going back to that where I was at the top and having a failure. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing crumbling. So what I have done is, is I've found that, 
um, I'm more successful with a gradient approach to something that is progressively harder. And so if like what I'm, I'm lifting weights, uh, five to six times a week, I've got kickboxing a few times a week. I'm getting cardio in every day and eating in a very specific manner today. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I took off a few months, put on 50 pounds, was not exercising at all, was eating like garbage, and I just tried to step back into what I'm doing today, I think I would crash and burn. Yeah. And so yeah. I would try to go very slowly and get some success and build back up to this. I think that has been the mistake I've made in the past, which was mm -hmm. trying to go all at once back to something like if I tried to row a marathon today, I would fail. I, it would be catastrophic failure. And then I might never get on the machine again. And mm -hmm. I'm saying this because this is what's happened to me three mm -hmm. times in the past <laughs> since my friends have become interested in rowing machines and decided to send me all their, you know, uh, PRs on rowing machines. I've gone like, oh, yeah, remember when I did a marathon? Let me try to do a marathon. Nowhere close to a marathon do I get my uh, I'm having muscle cramps. It's a total failure and I'm going, forget it. I'm not doing mm -hmm. this anymore. Yeah. If I sat and made a real plan on how to get back to being able to row a, a marathon, it would begin with very, very small efforts comparatively over a long period of time with mm -hmm. added with a time or a effort added to these efforts in order to get back there. But like I have failed at trying to hit a marathon a couple of times recently and, and gotten nowhere close, gotten like 20 minutes in and gone like, I just can't do this. I'm dying. <laughs> Fuck this machine. Um, so that's my that's my point. Right. Yeah. If you yeah. want to get back to something, don't just try to go back to, you know what I mean? Like imagine yeah. a guy who's 40 years old who hasn't exercised in 20 years, but was like a jock in high school. Mm hmm. That guy might not do well if he just starts doing his high school training again. Mm -hmm. You got to build up to it. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh, thank you to Roland for this question. And if you thank have you. a question that you would like answered on this podcast, you can email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.